Kubernetes community, and welcome to another episode of the uh, PodCTL podcast. Uh, coming from the never-ending winter and the uh, on the East Coast, uh, Brian, how's it going? <laughs> uh, things are good. It's uh, I. I I had to go to Thailand this week, so I'm, I'm just kind of getting back into some normal time zone. Uh, all the snow has melted here, so I, uh, I feel for you guys because uh, we, we had, what, two days of school that were canceled because of snow. Yeah, we up in Philly, there's uh, there's not much snow on the ground, you know, just a little kind of pile situation, but it's just the now never-ending cold. And I guess now they're saying Tuesday, Wednesday, next week, we're going to see some more precipitation, potentially snow. And uh, I was like, what's so, you know, March, we're supposed to be into the whole out like, out like a lamb part. Like, I right. thought we were, we're done with the in like a lion. Right, exactly. It's supposed to be springtime, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the... Uh the joys of uh, changing global weather and stuff like that. <laughs> anyways, hopefully it warms up for you soon because uh, yeah. it's, it's no fun having to pack all those clothes whenever you go places. So, hey, listen, I thought what we could do this week because um, it's kind of a down week and we've got the uh, the the Kubernetes one point ten release got pushed out about a week or so. So we're gonna we're gonna cover that on an upcoming show. But I thought what we could do since we're we're in one of those um, you know sort of doggy dog weeks when when there really was no news this week um, was I thought we could talk about kind of what's coming what do we think maybe the the big themes are going to be for 2018 uh, as people are you know people are mapping out hey what what kind of things should i study or what sort of trends do i think are coming um and so forth and you know not so much do a prediction show because it's way too early in the year and predictions don't matter anymore but thought we could you know just kind of talk about what the big trends that we sort of see that we'll expect projects and focus areas for for 2018 yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's not always just like, here's the new shiny. It's also like, here's some things you, you know, been paying attention to, but they're probably really going to be real this year kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, like one of the things, and we'll, we'll get into some of these, I, I think there's times when, when the community sometimes takes a, kind of takes a hard look at themselves and, and says, hey, you know, where do we need to double down on stuff? Where are we, where are we maybe not as good as, as we should be, um, whether it's just the technology or Hey, there's certain trends in the industry that, as a community, we got to get better at. So we will touch on some of those as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's cool. So, um, so I, I sort of broke it down into into five different areas, and, and these are in no particular order. Uh, but I had uh, kind of open brokers, so the work around uh, some of the open service broker stuff um, around operational experiences. Uh, I've got you know sort of what's going on with virtualization and containers because as we know. Um, be nice if everything would, would fit into one or the other, but they don't. Um, so we'll talk about some of that intersection. Uh, I've got developer experiences, again, the flip side of, of operations experience. And then the last one was kind of, you know, where are we in terms of the breadth of support or where do we expect to see the breadth of types of applications you can run on Kubernetes? Because that's still a really big topic of uh, of conversation and sometimes confusion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think... Um you know, if we get started with the uh, with the open broker kind of area, I, I I definitely agree here. I think this is this is something you know. Hey, cool. You know, last year, two years ago, kind of you know, taking the open service broker API work from Cloud Foundry and bringing it to Kubernetes, and I think it was a good start. Everyone's like, all right, well, now we agree. Like, we're going to use this, uh, and it's been the kind of little bit of a lag time uh, behind that. But now that you're starting to see more and more brokers get published. Uh, you know, the one with, with AWS that, that Red Hat released and uh, Azure posted theirs. They have a Helm chart for their broker. So we're really starting to see them take off. Yeah. So I, I think I've seen a couple of things. Um, it's, you know, it's good to see the cloud providers starting to provide theirs. Um, you know, one thing that I think people kind of need to be aware of is it seems like, and this is, this is smart, um, you know, the distribution of these brokers from the cloud providers is is coming from the cloud providers. So a lot of times people will ask us, for example, they'll say, okay, um, you know, how are you going to support 
the open service broker for, say, AWS in in OpenShift. And, and again, this would apply to, to any Kubernetes distribution or, or you know product and so forth. Um, and we have to tell people it's it's going to come from AWS, and and that makes the most sense because. Ultimately, you know, if an API changes in one of their services, they want to add six new services this quarter to the broker. Like they're the ones that ultimately should should be to be distributing that because they've got the most awareness of it. And again, because it's based on an open API, you should feel very comfortable that, you know, that doesn't have to be a whole bunch of retesting of the broker against any specific Kubernetes, you know, distribution. But um, that that's kind of what we've seen. And, and we're seeing AWS do it. We've seen Azure do it. Um, hopefully we'll see the Google one get, you know, publicly made. Uh, it's, you know, sort of floating out there, but not completely. Um, but yeah, I think that, that's coming along pretty well. Yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, from being in the industry long enough to see other things that are multi-whatever, whether it's, you know, hey, this tool manages multiple different companies' storage arrays or this company, this thing manages multiple networks or, or even, multi, you know, hey, we're going to do this multi-cloud kind of provisioning tool. Um, and they're always the the management and upkeep of the how do we talk to the thing is on that central tool. So they're like, well, we have to manage, you know, how to talk to 10 different companies, you know, APIs and, you know, 20 different vendors, this or that. And it's just... It ends up falling, you know, there's there's always a gap and it ends up falling down because they don't know what the roadmap looks like for that vendor. They don't know what's coming and it's right. very reactive and, and takes a ton of cycles. So the fact that we're seeing kind of just naturally the the, the broker community go the opposite way where the the act, the thing you're controlling is, is, you know, creating the broker uh, pieces is, I think, really promising. Right, right. Yeah, and I think it makes sense to to keep it distributed, let people kind of move at their own pace. Um, you know, the, the pace at which the Ansible broker the Azure broker, the AWS broker are going to move. Uh, they should be independent, and and that's and that's perfectly fine as long as they're continuing to to align to that open standard API. And uh, and I think that's what we've seen so far. So that's that's all good. I've also I know we we've heard some customers already talking about you know building their own brokers. They you know they've got some internal process, some internal system. Um, so it's good to see that. Uh, you know, companies are independently starting to understand. Okay, I don't have to rely just on the vendors for these brokers. We can we can start building them ourselves, and we we start to see some some early uh, interest in that stuff. Yeah, and I think that's where the I think what's kind of the early pieces of the tooling for customers to do that it seems pretty straightforward when you have like an api that's that's right there it's like oh well we have you know we use aws so here's their api to to do stuff yeah um i think it's the tooling to say like customers like well i run these shell scripts or whatever and i want to make sort of that available in the catalog uh so i think you know the ansible uh service broker um, I think it, you know leveraging the the you know Ansible playbooks and, and playbook bundles. You know a lot of customers use Ansible today, so that I feel like that's a, a first starting point. But um, I wouldn't be surprised to see like PowerShell brokers and other things that like leverage existing on-prem customer automation tools and just being able to make it easier to publish them in the catalog. Right. Right. Yep. Cool. Um, so that's you know definitely an area for people to, to go dig into and, and an area that's that's starting to get more and more mature. So that's a, definitely a good. A good broad thing for uh, for people to look at for 2018. Um, the next thing I had on my list was um, what I'm sort of calling improved operational experiences, and this is an area that I think has some parallels for the for the Kubernetes community for for a couple of years ago. And and here's here's the parallel that I'm sort of drawing. You know, I think when when the community looked a couple of years ago at um, you know they looked at themselves, and then Docker came along. And did some things to make it really, really simple to get not only some of the Docker tooling up and running, but also, you know, interconnect containers with Swarm. 
I think it was sort of a wake up call for the Kubernetes community to go, whoa, you know what? Um, it, you're a little too complicated, right? It's too hard to get an, uh, uh, you know, an environment up and running. It's kind of too hard to get, you know, bootstrapped and baseline stuff done. And then all of a sudden you saw the community realize that and you saw this ton of, of innovation around, you know, mini shift and mini cube and, and a whole bunch of tooling to, to make it much simpler to, to bootstrap clusters and so forth. And I think the parallel we're going to see is, you know, the industry kind of got a wake up call um, when things like AWS came out with Fargate and you're starting to see things like container instances. And in essence, it was, hey, you know, why are people spending cycles on, um, you know, managing the underlying infrastructure, if you will, you know, going through upgrades, managing it and so forth. And I, I think we're going to see uh, the, the, the broader community come back and say, okay, aside from some of those public cloud environments, how do we make it just as easy to get there? And I think, you know, starting to see some of these operator technologies emerge, uh, CoreOS was working on this. I think we're going to see that uh, become a big focus point for the community this year. Yeah, I feel like, you know, getting back to, you think of the, you know, the container, you know, the Docker file, the container image is the, is the packaging piece. And then, you know, think about it in the operations piece. And, and that's, I think the, you know, it's been good to see the Kubernetes community as a whole be, you'd be pretty self-aware and, and open to looking and saying like, well, maybe we could do better. Yep. Um, and you saw even like at, at KubeCon when, you know, Joe Beta says like Kubernetes sucks, it's, you know, most software does. It's just, you know, we need to make it easier. And, and I think having that focus on the dev side, like you said, made those leaps. And then now it's, uh, you know, kind of making that better on the op side. Yeah. And I, like I put it into this bucket, I think the broader Kubernetes community um, and, and while, you know, Microsoft and, and AWS now and, and Google, obviously, with Google Cloud are, are huge contributors. I think there is very much a, a respect that, hey, if, if we're really going to be successful, we need to, you know, enable Kubernetes everywhere and not just, you know, only as, as you know, three or four public cloud services. And so I think you're going to see the community say, hey, um, you know, if there's such a disparity between what it's like to experience it via public cloud and via something that a customer manages themselves or an SI manages for themselves, I think they realize like, okay, in order for this to be really widespread, we're going to have to make that better. And so keep an eye on, on some of the things that are going on to make upgrades simpler, you know, uh, scaling out resources simpler, just day-to-day underlying operations simpler. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's where, uh, especially when we see, it's funny, uh, I don't know, I think you see kind of similar things is, you know, we think about a lot of these tools kind of from like your own kind of perspective and use case and, you know, see so of developers, oh, we want to run containers and scale and things like that. And, and then it's, you know, it's plenty where like the developers don't even know they're running Kubernetes or whatever, you know, the, it's the ops team have, have really made their processes better. Right. So, you know, just thinking about it from a purely like, oh, I push my container and it runs. It's, and, and, when I say ops, you know, some people were like, well, if it's public cloud, well, you don't, you don't do that, right? Because it's they're taking care of it and kind of no ops thing that I think most people realize is, is silly. Because uh, the best way, I forget who, who said it originally, but, you know, kind of ops starts after the code's committed, right? So all of that stuff, the packaging, the running, the checking, the upgrading of the apps is all ops thing. So, so anything to make not just the Kubernetes cluster run easier, but then the, you know, the apps you're running on those and the life managing the life cycle of those apps. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so the third thing I had, and I know this is an area that you're really focused on is, you know, where are we going to see the intersection between, um, containers and, uh, and virtualization? Cause to a certain extent, 
you know, people sometimes will say, well, containers are sort of like lightweight virtualization. Uh, other instances, there's still a lot of debate about, you know, you know, how do you, how do you sort of define security boundaries, you know, that we know from virtual machines and, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff happening kind of at that new intersection of containers and, and virtualization. What are some of those areas that you're kind of interested in focused on? Um, yeah, I think I think kind of like our natural first move with with Kubernetes, especially you know when it, with Google and 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 then on AWS and other places was, hey, cool, we run containers in VMs because we have VMs they're easy to to get with APIs. We we set up VMs, we run containers in them. Now we have less contain less bigger VMs that are you know Kubernetes worker nodes instead of um, you know running individual Linux processes. And they're now running in containers. Like, hey, this is great. Uh, and it was interesting. The, the first initial things were, were stuff like security concerns of containers because, hey, it's a process. It's not a separate, you know, virtual hardware kind of deal. And that's where we first started to see people look at, well, what if we did like one VM per container? What if we made them really – the containers are a pain, but if we – I mean, VMs are a pain, but what if we made them small and fast? And, and you saw like VMware did some of their, um, you know, uh, vSphere container stuff, uh, Intel clear containers. So that was kind of interesting approach of like, well, we're still running virtualization, but then we run all these as VMs. And I think what's 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 interesting to me is the evolution of those. So now you have uh, Kata containers, which is you know uh, OpenStack picked up with Intel's clear container, and that's kind of like the next evolution of hey, I want to put each container in a really lightweight VM for whatever reason. I needed security or some special networking thing. But I think, you know, sometimes you have those reset moments where you take a step back. And I think what's interesting now, people are like, well, well, hey, if I'm if I'm doing that, like, why, why wouldn't I do the opposite? Like, why don't I run Kubernetes on bare metal and then run some in the containers, some of them be able to run VMs? Because it's like in, you know, in my future world, VMs may make up 10 percent or 20 percent of my environment the rest containers are, are are fine with all the security and advanced features that have now made it into containers like why wouldn't i do that so i think that's an area that's really interesting to me was talking to some customers too that are looking at doing that you know not tomorrow but looking at things like kubert uh and other technology where you can you know have a kubernetes cluster and and run vms um you know in there as well so that way they're they're treating you know kubernetes as more as their their not just container scheduler, but more just their their you know infrastructure scheduler, if you will. So if it's a container, if it's a VM in a container, you know what have you, it doesn't matter. Um, and I think that's where it's getting interesting because um, the challenges you get with running containers on VMs or even VMs on containers is something like you start doing this sort of um, virtualization inception when you get into stuff like networking, right? right so if you right. think you're like, hey, I'm running say VMware with some sort of SDN or I'm running say OpenStack and they have their networking, you know, using network encapsulation and SDN capabilities. And they're like, cool, you put containers like, well, containers like Kubernetes, you know, like we've talked about in the, on the networking show, like it does encapsulation. So you start getting this like encapsulation of encapsulation and MTU, you know, the joke and you get enough of them, then it's like your MTU size is four because you're just, the rest is all encapsulation in your, in your packet. So right. it's figuring out either how do they integrate uh, and like there's some work right now with, integrating uh, OpenStack Neutron with uh, Kubernetes networking pieces. And some of it's just like, well, what if we strip that layer out and use the you know Kubernetes layer to manage the SDN and then we can pop some VMs on there. So I, it's it's definitely not mature, but I think it's a, it's a space that people are starting to uh, kind of explore more and more. Yeah. Yeah, the other, the other part of the, the sort of containers virtualization intersection piece that was interesting to me is, um, you know, obviously we've seen on, on the, on the network side on the SDN side of things, um, you know, we're seeing 
the the SDN projects and 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 technologies that are out there, you know, kind of skewing more towards security. You know, we're sort of like okay, we're the overlay networks and so forth are they are what they are, and and you know, we're replacing hardware with software, and that's that's fine. Um, but it's more like okay. Let, let's let's focus on you know network isolation. Let's focus on sort of virtual firewall and 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 it'll be interesting to to me to see because in networking there's always this debate of like how smart should sort of the host systems be you know more more endpoint centric security and and isolation and so forth versus you know kind of the core network and there's always the um, you know should the should the network the core network be smart or should it be dumb um, and obviously there's different opinions on that depending on you know where you want to put intelligence but I think it'll be interesting to watch um, as as the network policy technology in Kubernetes gets more mature um, more granular easier to manage and so forth you know how much do people put focus on on network policy kind of being the security isolation our back type of capabilities versus embedding it into your SDN right because as you as you cross a, you know you go, you go across multiple cloud environments you don't necessarily always have control of the network or what the network can do um, you know do people focus more on on sort of network policy as a way of, of doing those things that maybe they would have done in an embedded you know SDN type of system yeah yeah I think that's the you know kind of when you try and put too many control points and like, hey, well, every place, that it, that's when you have to make the decisions of like, where, what layer does it make sense to manage this that makes it simple and, and easy? And, and the more things you integrate or customize, um, you know, the more effort and cost that it brings. So, right. you know, it's kind of making those smart decisions. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, like, like we always say, like try and keep things as simple as possible. And, and when you're going across multiple cloud environments at some point, whether you do it today or in the future, the more consistency that you can kind of control versus saying, oh, okay, well, in this environment, I can do a lot, but in that environment, I can't, um, you know, the, the, those become sort of architectural decision points that people start making. So, Yeah. And I, th I think people also make um, assumptions on like what they need, you know, bigger assumptions of what they need to accomplish things. We, I see this all the time, you know, back in with, with OpenStack with customers like, well, we need this super advanced SDN. I'm like, well, well, why? Like what, what are your requirements? And, you know, and they're like, oh, well, we need, you know, VMs not, you know, to be able to create virtual networks and VMs that can't talk to each other, we control what can talk to what on what port and blah, blah. I'm like, that's like Linux bridge does that. Like you don't, right. you, know, like, right. you don't need to buy a million dollar SDN to do that. Um, you know, there's, there are use cases for those, but like, don't go to them if you don't need them. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. This is the, the next one on our list, uh, that I listed was, was developer experience. And I, and I think of all the ones on this list, this is, this is the one that we're going to see the most innovation happening, but I also feel like it's, it's maybe the least mature, uh, of, of all the things that you can kind of do with Kubernetes today, which, which sounds weird because, um, you know, like you know, people like, uh, like Stephen O'Grady from Red Monk just wrote a big article about saying, Hey, uh, you know, developers drove, you know, the, the success of Kubernetes and you know, that's a debatable topic and so forth. But, but in terms of developer experience, um, you know, I think giving developers a lot of control over what they can do and embedding it in their tools, I think is still something that's really kind of new, right? I think we've, we've just sort of adapted a lot of like throw stuff in a container and, and make it figure out how to scale it. But, but very elegant solutions, I think there's still going to be a lot of, of work. And we've seen some interesting uh, projects start to emerge in this space. Yeah. And I think the, the cool thing about this is the sort of is seeped into the kind of the core of the Kubernetes community. And I think it came from, you know, came from the, the sort of Docker revolution was 
there's not one kind of developer. There's not one even within a certain type of developer or certain code based develop you know language. The developers like working in different ways. You know, I mean, you don't have to go far on the internet to find like uh, you know VI versus Emacs you know arguments yep. and things yep. that, like everyone has their way. So I think that's kind of like what pushback against the the PaaS approach of like here's the one way to do it and then everything's amazing right. is having these different ways where some people just like to build their own Docker VM. You know, some you know like to be able to you know do different and and I've and to your point as it matures like new problems arise or new potential solutions like something like draft where where developers say well yeah i like i like docker containers and stuff like that but like once my app gets big enough i can't run it locally on my laptop to test and like i want to make like quick changes and like you know what happens when i do this save and change it and like oh well you know draft is a way to um you know keep updating your container while it's running to be able to do testing and stuff in a dev environment. And like, Oh, okay. Like this thing was uncovered as a problem. The more it gets used, the more sort of challenges that are uncovered and new solutions to them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think if, if we look at this, I think you made a great point, right? The, if, if you look at PaaS environments, you know, PaaS environments were all designed with the idea of make it as simple as possible for the developer, hide all sorts of complexity. Yes. It's highly opinionated, but those opinions are sort of, you know, geared towards, you know, again, that simplicity idea. And, and as we saw in the marketplaces, you know, paths only eventually got so much reach because the, those opinions maybe crossed a line. They, they're just, they just couldn't serve enough different types of, of customers, whether it was a language barrier or a, just a workflow barrier or how teams work together. Um, and so it's going to feel a little bit at times, maybe like there are all these different projects and things going on. And, but, but I think if, if people step back and say, okay, what does our environment look like? What languages do we care about? What frameworks do we care about? How do our developers work together? How do we want to make updates? You're going to be able to pick and choose the things that fit for you. And you won't necessarily have to go, oh, is everybody doing it exactly like us, right? So you're going to have customers who are companies who say, you know, Istio makes sense. But, and then you'll have others who just say, well, Maybe I only care about Envoy. Or, you know, I don't need the full-blown Istio thing. Okay, that's cool. That's fine. There's There are people that are thinking about that stuff. You're going to have people that like Helm um, and others who say, you know, oh, Helm doesn't do all the security things I want. Okay, that's cool. That's like that's what things like OpenShift templates do. They're, they've got more kind of inherent security things built in. And hopefully, you know, those will eventually merge in things like Helm V3. And um, like you said, you've got Draft, which is still sort of new, but it's it's very much saying, Hey, if I've got certain kinds of development environments, you know, certain update patterns, certain ways I want to do it, you know, I'll go explore that project. And the nice thing is because you're not bound by what the PAS opinion is, you can start to build your own opinions. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, you know, kind of capabilities that that are really been driving this revolution is, is being able to to kind of go the way you want but also in the same platform i think that's the where it's like well we need for developers that want to work like this they want to do that and i i feel like it's just that natural human kind of instinct to to try and categorize and bucket things just to make things easier to understand right so then it's like oh well well paz is good for cloud native apps and then containers are good for old apps and this is good for this and versus like not really. Like, if you, like you say, even if you think about pads, all it's doing is building containers. It's just building it for you in a specific way. So it's like those tools are fine. So I think that's where you see like, I mean, OpenShift's a good example. Of, like, 
it basically has PaaS capabilities, but then runs it on Kubernetes. So if you want to create containers, if you want a PaaS, PaaS experience, they're both there. And you're starting to see more and more tools move to that where it's, hey, you can bring your own tool that builds the containers, you can build your own. And then the fact that one organization, especially if you're a large enterprise, you probably have, you know, de- with even one team, you have developers that work differently. But then you get cross different teams, you know, you get a lot of different styles of working. So having one platform that can can kind of answer those is, I think, pretty, uh, pretty powerful right now. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing, the other big takeaway from this is the, the, the past platforms kind of under the covers, if you will, a lot of it was, you know, essentially kind of platform specific technology. So, you know, your, your operations team had to learn how things worked under the covers. And, and then as containers came along, you know, and, and Kubernetes essentially became the de facto standard. If, you know, if you weren't using containers under the covers and, and Kubernetes under the covers, now your teams had to learn two different things or three different things and so forth. And I think we've seen with the breadth of stuff, and we're going to get into this next, with the breadth of stuff that can run on Kubernetes between different kinds of schedulers, between how you attach storage for statefulness and, and other things, um, you know, the the mindset really ought to be, at least our, you know, we, what I'd recommend is, you know, be as consistent as possible for the operations teams so they can automate, they can you know, know how to troubleshoot. They feel like they've got enough visibility. And then the abstractions for sort of flexibility should be on, you know, letting developers, uh, you know, have multiple kinds of tools. So sort of developer flexibility, but operationally consistent. And, and I think Kubernetes is the core of what that consistency looks like for operators. Yeah, you have OCI compliant. You end up, no matter how you build it, you end up with OCI compliant container images running on a, you know, unified Kubernetes platform that you can run in, you know, pretty much, you know, public clouds, private, you know, VMware, whatever. Right. I think that's that's really the power for the for the ops team to have like one way to do things and for the developer team to work whichever way they want. Yeah. Yeah. And we and we've seen this in the past. I mean it's it's the equivalent would be like saying, well, you know, I should have a different network for um you know, how I manage wireless users versus VPN in users versus, you know, power users. And it's like, no, 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 you, you had one kind of core network with certain architectural principles. And, you know, if it was a wireless user, think of that as like, you know, a different development opinion. And then if you had a, a wired user, that was a different development opinion. And if you had a, a server that needed to be clustered, um, that was sort of it. But all those things could could be overlaid on top of the same consistent, you know, essentially Ethernet network. Um, to go everywhere, and so operations knew how to how to manage Ethernet, whether it was wired or wired or high speed or gig or whatever. I think the the same sort of analogy applies here. Yeah, yeah, I think that's 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 a really good analogy. Is you know, it's and once you get under the covers, it's it's all just you know network clients and and accessing, and there's the same thing here. Whether it's how you're building it, you're still just ending up with containers. So why operationally treat them differently, even if we get to them differently? Right, right. Well, cool. Let's and and I think the follow up to that one, and this was the last one on our list, was, you know, we get this question all the time from people, and we hear it sometimes in the press, and we get it from customers, and is they'll say, well, you know, of the things that I have, like what should I run on Kubernetes? Like which ones work well? Which ones should I not? Um, and and this is a really has become an interesting evolution over the last couple of years. Cause I think if we collectively as an industry said like, Hey, what'll run in containers? Like when Kubernetes was first coming out, I think it was very much like, well, you know, only focus on the new stuff. Don't, don't burden yourself with, with old stuff on Kubernetes because Kubernetes is going to go fast and it's about cloud native that that's evolved a huge amount over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think that's, um, and it's so funny to see the, the kind of change, even if you think about when Docker first really hit the scene, it was, 
but containers, ephemeral, that's all you're doing. That's that's all there is to it. It's very super cloud native you know, um, startup, AWS, you know, whatever buzzwords, kind of, you know, hipster developer kind of thing. Uh, and then now, like, if you ask some of the companies, they're like, well, that's containers and Kubernetes, that's for, like, legacy applications and old stuff. Like, you're using, uh, you know, this serverless or PaaS or whatever for your cloud native. And you're like, wow, that, that changed pretty quickly. Right. But, I mean, I think it's a combination of the evolution of Docker containers and then Kubernetes of, like, how do we handle persistence? How do we handle, you know, a storage and networking and stuff in a way that handles that? And, and when you get back to, you know, even if you go back to pre-Docker, like, LXC days, you know, it's like if you can run multiple things on a Linux host, like it's you can run it, you can run it in a container. And I think that's where we get we're really back to is, hey, if it runs on Linux, 98 percent of the time it'll run in a container. Um, it's just I think where customers are really deciding is, is it worth the, you know, the the effort for like if you look at older stuff, is it, is it worth the effort? So you're like, well, I have 10,000 uh, Tomcat VMs. And, you know, they're really just one of like six, you know, two different images. And then they have, you know, there's a hundred different um, artifacts in them for the, all these different web apps we have and everything like that. Well, it's like, well, that should be pretty easy to turn to a Docker file and turn those all into containers really easily. Save a lot of work. Like that's that's a huge win. Like, let's do that. Where you're like, or oh, I have four big Oracle clusters and they're, you know, very artisanal they've been handcrafted and loved over the years and and tweaked and stuff like well yeah we 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 could get that in containers but like are we really getting anything by getting them out of vms like doesn't seem like a good place to spend our time and and effort so i think that's really more of the what's the business value of moving them over where i think there's a lot of stuff whether you're developing new or or existing that you can get in a ton of value moving into containers and then some stuff it's like, well, and it's almost like it was with, 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 you know, P to being and stuff like, well, most of our VMs are fit, but we have these couple huge physicals that are like, let's just leave them and, and let them be. And, and that, that's what made sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, if we look back and we said, Hey, we started 2017, like, what do you think fits in there? It was, it was kind of this mix of like, ah, uh, you know, new stuff for sure. And then, you know, we'll kind of see what we can move. I, I think we learned, I, I think we saw a ton of, companies who in 2017 became really comfortable with this idea of, like you said, like if it, if it runs on Linux today pretty well, I can get it into a container and there's, there's value in, you know, consistency of packaging, consistency of apps and operations, you, you get sort of built in automation. Um, and then I, I think the next challenge is, and we, we saw this towards the end of 2017 was people would say, well, okay, that makes sense. Um, what about databases? Cause obviously databases, you know, super important, uh, critical to applications and I think the state of databases and containers is is an essence. And again, don't take this as an absolute. Um, you know, single instance databases they run fine. Um, you know, we're very good at, at being able to attach persistent storage to containers and uh, you know automate around that. Um, there's there's work going on, obviously, for the cluster databases. And and I've been really encouraged to see you know Couchbase and and uh, you know a whole bunch of other um, databases. You know, MySQL and others. Um, you know, working on how do we bridge the gap between stateful sets in Kubernetes and the clustering technology that's native in the databases and make that pretty transparent. So I, I would say that's, it's getting better. It's not perfect and it doesn't work for every single database, but, but that's a, an area that's definitely getting better. Yeah, no, I think, I think that intelligence, that's one of those things where, you know, as you're a software developer and you're used to like, well, I build this app and then I need to build these type of capabilities. And then when you're like, wait, there's an existing module I can reuse or framework or whatever, like, oh, instead of, you know, 
using Flask and Python to build websites, like, oh, there's this Django thing, which has, you know, has this structure already. And I feel like that's starting to happen. Yeah. With the, where a database, like, well, we scale out and here's how they talk to each other. Like, well, if we give them a kube namespace and they can do that, you know, and like they could check with kube to see where the other nodes are and they can do like use the capabilities of, you know, kube's ability to you know scale out pods and, and stuff like that to like specifically integrate with the database or yeah, like right now it's more of, you use it in spite of, you know, the capabilities. It's not taking advantage of it. And I think, yeah, I think that's going to be really exciting to see. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I think what we're kind of saying is like there, there was times say like with virtualization where you could make something work with the database, but it was kind of fighting against what the database vendors wanted to do. I think, you know, and, and I think we're seeing this because of, of cloud principles where you, you know, you have to design around, Hey, you, you can't always know that you're going to control the underlying infrastructure. The infra- underlying infrastructure may be less reliable than it was before, but, but you know, that's okay. I, I, we've seen a huge step up of the database vendors, um, you know, kind of going, we're going to drive the awareness of what, what these new capabilities can do. And so that, that's been really interesting, right? It hasn't been endless support calls because people are trying to do some workaround they found on a blog or something somewhere. It's, it's become sort of native capabilities of the database working with these, these new container Kubernetes environments. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I think that, I think that also kind of goes into the next topic in this area, uh, serverless too. Right. So, so, I mean, I mean we talked about, uh, we've talked about this on previous shows, the, you know, in my mind kind of serverless is short running containers that scale really wide. Cause that's basically what happens under the covers at Lambda uh, and stuff. So then it's, well, building containers isn't that hard. So, you know, I can build a container that, that does one thing that would also be in a Lambda. Um, so then it's just scheduling them, you know, event driven, kicking those pieces off. And I think that's some of that integration, you know, there's existing, you know, stuff like OpenWhisk and, and, and serverless uh, projects. As they, you know, today they run on Kubernetes, but as they integrate more and leverage more of the the Kubernetes scheduling and and resources, I think that's where they get more powerful too. Is well, why do we need to build the layer to manage this piece where we can just push that off to Kubernetes? Yeah, and I think the other thing that, that and I don't I don't want to predict this, but I believe we're going to see some consolidation around all the different serverless projects that happen on top of Kubernetes. I think people are going to get smart enough to say you know, I, I thought it might be a good idea to build my own project. And, you know, maybe that's going to be a differentiator for my platform because I'm a vendor. And I, But I think what they're going to realize is the the money and the value in serverless isn't going to be, do you have the ability to spin up a bunch of containers really fast? It's going to be, what are the data sources, the events, the sort of sources and sync that you, you integrate with? And I th- I'm hoping that we see people kind of come around to go like, hey, why are we doing this 10 different ways when, when we should, you know, we should, we should kind of collectively focus a little more. And I think the market's going to drive that, uh, you know, customers are going to ask for certain things. Um, and, and so I expect we will see less and less little projects spinning out that do serverless and more and more consolidation around one or two of these projects. And I don't know which one it'll be. I don't want to make a prediction. Um, but I, you know, just the nature of, you know, what we've seen in the past with the industry and, you know, history repeats itself is you you can't have 10 different implementations and have any success with them if, if resources are that spread out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, we even look now like, oh, there's still a lot of Linux distributions out there. It's like, yeah, but there's three or something that are widely popular for right. um, kind of thing. So it's like, you know, they may not uh, completely die off, but, you know, I think you'll see the interest consolidate around, you know, one or two. Cause I mean, and and let's be let's be honest, right? What are we? What's happening here is 
Um, Amazon AWS came up with an idea, this, you know, concept of, of how to do this. So you're basically copying them, you know, kind of, they've yeah. set the parameters of what this looks like. So then it's not usually there's like, well, we think it should work this way. We Now you're talking just basically different implementation details, but you want it to work roughly the same. So there's, there's not a lot of room for a lot of projects when they basically are expected to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing that comes up all the time around applications and, and obviously we talk a ton about, you know, containers on Linux and so forth is, you know, what's going on with, you know, containers and windows because customers have lots of windows applications. Most shops are, you know, Java plus, plus windows, uh, you know, of some mix. Um, and, and I think the windows where windows goes in 2018, um, is going to be interesting. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say, and I hope it doesn't get taken the wrong way. Like I think the hype around windows containers is maybe a little too hot. And, and I'll say this in the context of, the things that you have to do in container, you know, in an operating system to do containers, you know, C, C groups and namespaces and some of the isolation and security, like, like that's been built into Linux for ten plus years, but yet it took, you know, six seven years before it got really stable and things like Docker could then make it simpler. Um, I mean, the Windows operating system is sort of building these concepts from scratch, so I, I think people may want to temper how fast that's going to happen and, and how mature that's going to happen uh, a little bit. Because I think right now people think like, oh, I have this, you know, um, you know, old, old .NET thing that requires, you know, Internet Explorer 5 or 6, and that's just going to be, just going to be able to throw that thing in a container and everything's going to work and, you know, zippity doo dah. Like, <laughs> I, I think we're going to have to temper that a little bit going into 2018. Yeah, and I, and I think there'll be there'll be a kind of adjustments off that because yeah, like you said, I I think that's a really good sort of recommendation is don't make assumption on how Windows containers work based on what you know about Linux containers, and that's probably the number one I see, which is like, oh well, if I'm you know the there yeah, you know, there's some specific instances, but in general, like the container image OS doesn't matter as you know when it touches you know, so I can be running RHEL and then I can run a Gen two Linux or Alpine Linux container and everything where where I think that's the thought process. Like, oh yeah, well if I'm running Windows Server twenty sixteen, like cool, and then I could run this um, you know, Windows uh twenty twelve image or this, you know, Windows two thousand three server, you know, container app and like no, 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 like it's not like a VM. Um, so I think that's important, but I think this is where kind of the devil in the details may not matter for what customers want. And that's why I see Microsoft doing things like Hyper-V containers where like, well, it's sort of like clear containers where it's like, well, it's technically it's a really tiny little VM. But if that gives them, you know, longer term as they mature, the ability to run older versions of Windows in a container, I think like that's what customers care about. Do they care if it's a, you know, micro VM or if it's a, you know, legit full container? No. Yeah. Um, but I think it's more of the kind of the process and, and capabilities and experience. But yeah, I think this is, it's way, you know, the fact that there's, you know, content windows container support in, in Kubernetes is, is still beta. Um, it's still, you know, yes, you can do those types of things. I, I still see a lot of windows, um, cause you know, they were thinking, well, we'll just wait for windows containers. And then now they're starting to look more at, at, the uh, .NET Core stuff of like, well, if we if we move to .NET Core, we can do Linux containers and and move from there and and or even just at least pulling their .NET apps up to 2016 to like, well, yeah, we run in 2003 because we did, but like, will it run on 2016? Because uh, that may fix our problem too. So I think it's it's some of those other areas, but expecting this like magic 
Windows perfect container thing to come down, you know, from above this year and fix all your Windows container problems is is definitely um, probably way too optimistic. Right. Yeah. And I and I don't mean to I, I don't mean to sort of come across as really negative or trying to throw cold water. The the work that's going on and especially the stuff Microsoft driving is is moving along really well. Um, you know, it's it's awesome to see them contributing and and you know wanting to make this happen and so forth. But just you know, kind of if if this is an area that's really important to you, you know, you've got a ton of Windows those apps and you really, you know, you're thinking about this and you're like, I think we're going to get value out of it, whether it's operational value or cost savings or, or whatever, like dig into it some more. Don't just sort of, you know, think about deploying windows containers based on the headlines of like, Hey, it's in there and, you know, go, go try it out. Like there are, there are a lot of dependencies that you've got to make sure are going to be there for you before you even get started. You know, the version of windows server, the, you know, the, how you're going to secure them, how, how you're going to network them. Cause obviously, uh, you know, windows and networking have, has never been nearly as robust as, as we've seen on some of the other platforms and so forth. So, so do your homework in that space, if that's important to you, because you may find there's, there's more caveats and details that you need that you hadn't necessarily thought of. Yeah. I think, I think the message is not like, Oh, it's bad. Or like you said, they're not doing the right thing. It's like, these are really hard engineering yeah. problems and the really smart people at Microsoft are working really hard on this and, and building pretty awesome stuff. It's just, you have to be patient. You know, there's some of that non-compressible engineering time that it takes to, to build these things. So yeah, it's definitely not a knock. It's I'm, I'm really impressed with what they're building. It's just, it takes time to, to build these things and, and get them out there. Yep. Well, listen, we have been going for a long time. Um, hopefully we gave people some things to, you know, to dig into. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest takeaway we wanted to have with this show is um, Kubernetes is becoming much more stable. Um, you know, we're going to move into 110. We're 10 releases in. We're three plus years into this. Um, and, and people always, when things are stable or getting more stable, you know, want to know what's coming in the future. There's always a natural engineering curiosity. What we wanted to do was not just give you a bunch of new shiny rocks to go look for, but sort of go, here's areas where we think the community is going to focus. And I hope what you got out of it was, hey, some of those things are operational and they're, you know, kind of admitting there's still work to do and maturity. And, and then there's, you know, there's enough sort of shiny rocks to keep you all interested. So with that, Tyler, I think, uh, you know, we've been going for a long time, hopefully gave people a lot to think about. And, you know, folks, if you have some follow up questions or, you know, topics that spin out of these things, let us know. Um, as always, you know, show notes and, and email and stuff, let us know. Um, appreciate everybody listening. If you, you know, it'd help us. If you, if you like the show, go out, tell a friend, uh, give us a rating on, on iTunes. You know, we love five-star ratings on iTunes. It helps us get more visibility for the show and, and brings in new listeners. So with that folks, we're going to wrap it up for Tyler and myself, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. 